Today we continue our series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Despite opposition and imprisonment, this letter is overflowing with joy. And so we're asking the question, from where does Paul derive this joy? How is it that Paul can continue rejoicing even in the midst of pain and suffering? Last week, Paul encouraged the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by cultivating in themselves the mind of Christ, who humbled himself and emptied himself for the sake of others. To have the mind of Christ is to have a selfless, others-oriented mindset. The mind of Christ, therefore, breeds unity. And when all within the community have the mind of Christ, the result is a tight-knit Christian fellowship that can withstand whatever opposition comes. Now, this may sound obvious, uh, but I do think it's worth making explicit. Paul is not writing this letter to a single person. Paul is writing this letter to a congregation, a group of people. So keep that in mind as we read verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is a difficult passage, especially for evangelical Protestants. Paul tells us to work out our salvation. And we tend to feel uneasy about that because it sounds like Paul is adding works to the calculus of our salvation. But Paul does not tell us to work for our salvation. Paul tells us to work out our salvation. And remember, Paul is writing this letter to a group of people. In fact, when he says, work out your own salvation, the phrase your own is plural. So if Paul were from Texas... He might say, work out y'all's salvation. And so these verses have implications for individual Christians, absolutely. We are all personally responsible for maturing and progressing in the faith. We are all personally responsible for growing our knowledge and for deepening our faith and for fighting our sin. But even so, Paul is addressing first and foremost the group as a whole. He wants the Philippians as a congregation to work out among themselves what salvation ought to look like in practice. Keep in mind, our passage today follows immediately after an appeal to humility, selflessness, and unity. And Paul is still building upon all of that. Work out your salvation is another way of saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Work out your own salvation is another way of saying, live like citizens of heaven. Be humble and selfless and unified. You see, salvation is not just something that we receive. Salvation is something that we live out, and we live it out together. For Paul, faith in Christ will always take the form of obedience. That, that's, not, that's not because Christianity is just a list of rules. It's because Christ is a king worthy of our loyalty and devotion. And his kingdom is a kingdom of love and righteousness and justice and peace. Because Jesus loves us, he wants love and righteousness 
and justice and peace to be realized out in the world. And so again, salvation is not just a a private thing that happens inside our hearts. In the fullest sense, salvation is individual and corporate. It's spiritual and material. In the Bible, when God promises to save his people, he is not just talking about changing our individual hearts. He's talking about bringing unity and harmony to our fellowship. And he's talking about bringing freedom and justice to the world around us. So, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why with fear and trembling? Well, simply put, it's because God is working in our midst. We ought to tremble knowing that God is working in our midst. We ought to be astonished that God is working in our midst. We ought to feel the full weight of of what it is that God is wanting to accomplish through us. God forbid we fail to join him in that work. Or worse, work against him in that work. What a waste it would be for our sin to hinder the progress of the gospel. What a waste it would be for God's good work to be undermined by our pride and selfishness and lack of unity. To join in God's work is an enormous privilege. And so to work out our salvation, our own salvation, is an enormous privilege. It's not a warning. This is an invitation. So, that's what I think Paul means by working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But practically speaking, what what does that look like? Well, Paul began to answer that question at the beginning of chapter 2, and now he continues. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Okay, we, of course, desire to be blameless and innocent before God. We, of course, desire to be children of God without blemish. We desire to be lights in the world. We desire to hold fast the word of life. But what does Paul say is required? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so the degree to which we grumble and dispute, to the degree that we grumble and dispute, we are blemished children. To the degree that we grumble and dispute, we do not shine as lights in the world. Grumbling and disputing is a far cry from fear and trembling. Now, Paul is making this reference here to uh, the people of Israel following the Exodus. Okay, they were delivered from captivity by the hand of God. Their enemies had been defeated by the hand of God. They were given the law by the hand of God. They drank water from the hand of God, and they ate food from the hand of God. And yet, during what ought to have been a relatively brief journey through the wilderness, they began to bite the hand that fed them. The people began grumbling and disputing. 
rather than giving thanks and rejoicing in their salvation, rather than working out their salvation. At the first sign of hardship, they began to complain and to turn on their leaders and to question God's goodness. And so Paul is writing to a new generation for whom God has accomplished a new exodus in Christ. And this time, they were to live in a manner worthy of all that God had done to save them. By putting away all grumbling and disputing, by cultivating love and harmony, by practicing selflessness and humility, the Philippians would shine as lights in the world, or literally as stars in the cosmos. Now, In verses 17 and 18, Paul rejoices at the prospect of being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of the Philippians. This sounds like a new thought, um, but it's actually not. This follows from the previous verses. So what does Paul mean when he says this? He's talking about being poured out as a drink offering upon their sacrifice. Under the sacrificial system, when an animal was sacrificed a drink offering of wine would be poured out upon the sacrifice. But here's the thing. The drink offering was only to be offered when the people of Israel were dwelling in the land of promise. After all, it is hard to make wine when you are traveling around in the wilderness, right? So Paul has just told the Philippians not to grumble and dispute like that generation in the wilderness. And then he refers to a drink offering that was reserved for the land of promise. This this is so important. No matter what opposition the Philippians face, they are not in the wilderness. Christ Jesus has defeated their enemies and placed them within the land of promise. No tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword shall separate them from the love of Christ. In all these things, they are more than conquerors. The time for drink offerings has come, Paul says. Do not grumble. Do not dispute because the time for drink offerings has come. We have come to the land of promise. No matter what opposition we face, we are never in the wilderness. We are always held within the love of Jesus Christ. Now, in the verses that remain, verses 19 to 30, Paul mentions two of his fellow workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Concerning Timothy, Paul has no one like him who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. For all the others seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And concerning Epaphroditus, Paul says that he is a soldier worthy of honor, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Okay, but why is Paul telling us these things? It seems strange that he would mention Timothy and Epaphroditus here. This is typical for Paul in a sense, but it usually comes at the very end of his letter. In this case, however, Paul takes 12 verses, that's more than 10% of this letter, 12 verses right in the middle of his letter to mention these two men. 
Again, that's strange. But it gets even more strange the deeper we go. Um, this, this isn't typically the sort of thing I would include in a sermon, but I do think it is edifying and enlighten, enlightening. Um, so I'm going to ask that you hang with me. Paul's letter to the Philippians follows a chiastic structure, which means that there is a basic symmetry to it. It's a there and back again structure. An example of, an, of a chiastic structure would be A, B, C, B, A, kind of like a palindrome, okay? So I put a simple breakdown of the structure of Philippians in your bulletin, um, and hopefully you can get a feel for what I'm talking about. Do give it a look, because I spent way too much time putting that together. Um, the thing that's so strange about this is that Timothy and Epaphroditus are at the very center of the chiastic structure. Meaning, Paul's letter to the Philippians has been structured and designed to make Timothy and Epaphroditus the focus of attention. We might expect the central position to mention Christ or the gospel or even the Philippians, but it doesn't. The entire structure is pointing to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Why? Well, it's, it's one thing for Paul to say, have the mind of Christ. And it's another thing for Paul to say, follow my example. But it's yet another thing for Paul to present two of his disciples as a living testimony to the point that he is trying to make. He is commending their faithfulness because they embody the sort of life Paul is talking about. In humility, Timothy counts others more significant than himself. Timothy looks not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. For the sake of Christ, Epaphroditus not only believes in Christ, but also suffers for his sake. In other words, these two men have the mind of Christ. These two men are willing to be emptied for the sake of the church. These two men are willing to take the form of a servant. They're willing to be obedient even to the point of death. And not only does this reinforce the point Paul is making, this is also the perfect way for Paul to confront the primary value system in Philippi. Remember, it's deeply Roman. And so Paul is inverting the social hierarchy. In a world full of self-promoting, self-aggrandizing people who are jockeying for power and influence, Paul is elevating and promoting the people under him. And this means that Paul practices what he preaches. He, too, has the mind of Christ. He, too, considers others more significant than himself. That's not all. The centrality of Timothy and Epaphroditus in this letter is also very good news for us. It means we don't have to be martyred to have the mind of Christ. We don't have to die on a cross to live a life worthy of commendation. Nor do we have to plant churches all over the world to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. At the very heart of this letter, Paul is commending the humble service of two men who otherwise would have been forgotten. Their service was quiet and humble. They were not in it for themselves. They were quietly pouring themselves out. 
even when nobody was there to see it. They kept on sacrificing for the good of others. And this letter is trying to tell us, Paul's letter to the Philippians is trying to tell us that that is where we will find joy. Jesus emptied himself for the joy set before him. Paul emptied himself for the joy set before him. Timothy and Epaphroditus emptied themselves for the joy set before them. Are you willing to be emptied? What is the joy set before you? Is it the glory of Christ? Is it the advancement of the gospel? Is it the well-being of the church? Now, that's, that's as practical as I'm going to get because I think we all have to work out for ourselves what self-emptying love looks like. We all have different strengths, different personalities, different family situations, different salaries, but we are all called to some form of self-emptying love. But again, we, we tend not to sacrifice for things in the present unless we have hope for something better in the future. So what is that joy set before you? I pray it's the glory of Christ. I pray it's the advancement of the gospel. I pray it's the well-being of the church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you created us for the joy set before you. And you created us to experience that joy. We look to you for it. Jesus, you suffered and died for the joy set before you. You emptied yourself for our sake that we might experience the fullness of joy in you. And we look to you for it. Holy Spirit, help us to, to work out this wonderful salva salvation. Make us a joy-filled fellowship marked by self-emptying love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.